morning, Willow Hills. Come on, give it to me. Good morning, Willow Hills. Yeah, I love to hear that. Some energy in the room. I love that. I love that. Uh, it's 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 great that we have the gift of Zoom and and you can watch you know through podcasts and all that stuff. And God bless you guys. Love to have you on board and all that. But it really is nice to preach to a room where there's more than five people. We've got nine here this morning, so we're doing okay. No, it, it's just is really. You know, you're getting back to normal when. Shauna gets up to give announcements, and she's breathing hard because she's been worshiping. And she worships, she jumps up and down, and especially if there's a lively one before she gets up here, uh, she's like, ah, catching her breath. So that's good news. We're getting back to normal, and uh, worship especially, it just feels so good to uh, be, be together. Good seeing familiar faces. It's been a long time. It's really been a long haul, man. Long haul, but I will tell you, and I don't mean this, and I take this in the right way, but I am really proud of Woodland Hills Church. I really am. I'm really proud of, 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 of how we've weathered the storm. It's, praise God, he sustained us, but uh, we're, we're, you know, you know kind of what you're made of when you're tested, and, and, and this has just been, uh, uh, this testing has just been, we've come out of this remarkably good, and I feel really good about it. Uh, we don't know what it's going to look like from, you know, from this, there's a new normal, we're, we're, we're flying blind here, we don't know what it's going to look like, but we'll just, you know, follow the spirit and see how it goes, and and uh, see where it takes us. Hey, before I get into anything, oh, by the way, I should probably introduce myself because you might be here uh, for the first time. So if you're visiting for the first time or if you're visiting for the first time online, uh, hi, I'm Greg. I'm a senior pastor here and teaching pastor here. And it's really good to have you tuning in with us uh, here this morning. Uh, I want to say thanks to Oshita for the uh, message she gave last week, a beautiful message on, on integrity. Wasn't that great? We're, we're just blessed with such a great team of teachers here. I, I just am so grateful for, for the teachers we have around here. Some of you who are astute may have noticed that we're a little bit out of order. Uh, she jumped ahead a few verses, and I was going to explain to you why that is the case, but you know what? It's just too complicated, so just trust me. We, we needed to rearrange the order. So uh, today I'll be talking about Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, uh, going back a few verses. But before I do that, I, I want to say this, and I want us to engage in something here. Um, as kingdom people, we're to have a heart for... The globe. Uh, we're not, our, our awareness and our concern and our empathy shouldn't be limited to our particular nation, wherever your nation may be. Uh, but we're to be global citizens. And we have unique authority uh, as kingdom people uh, to, to change the world through the power of prayer. We really believe that. That's a very basic biblical teaching. Right now, as I'm sure most of us know, there's, there's this uh, havoc being uh, reeked out in the Middle East. Uh, and they're on the brink of an, another war. And... Uh, and it's, it's tragic, it's fighting Israel, Palestine, and the Middle East, and it's just, it's just, it, it, the merry-go-round goes, it, it just goes on and on and on, and people die, and so I want us to pray. And, and you think, well, what can our little group here, you know, we've got a couple thousand, whatever, what, what can we do in the Middle East through prayer? Well, I, you know, God says it makes a difference, so we don't have to know what difference it makes, just know that you're making a difference. Maybe there'll be one kid less killed because of our prayer, you know? Uh, who, who knows how that works, but, but I want us to pray together for, for this, this situation that is arising in, in the Middle East. Would you pray with me now? Abba, Father, we come to you uh, as your children, uh, and thank you for the unique authority that you give us. Uh, you've just wired it into the nature of creation that when your people, your bride, talks to you, it releases a power from heaven. When there's an agreement on earth as it is in heaven, then your will is brought about more on earth as it is in heaven. So, Lord... We now intercede on behalf of the folks that are caught in the crossfire of this war, uh, or this it looks like it's becoming a war uh, between Palestine and Israel. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, 
you, you influence the leaders and all the decision makers involved in this in the direction of peace. Show them the ways that make for peace. Give them the wisdom to know the ways that make for peace. And Lord, give those surrounding nations, including America, a wisdom on knowing how to intervene on this to prevent more bloodshed from happening. So Lord, just breathe your shalom on that land, on those people. Wrap your arms of love around them. Protect as many as possible. And bring a speedy end to this, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen. All right. So we're going back to Matthew. We're in a series here on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going back now a couple of verses to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus says this. It was also said, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman, a divorced woman, commits adultery. Well, isn't that special? <laughs> this is the encouraging word for today. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. Next week... Next week, I'm going to explain the background of this passage, and I'll explain what this certificate of divorce is about, and I'll explain what, this, what I think Jesus means when he says, except for the grounds of unchastity, and what Jesus means when he says, whoever divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries her commits adultery. Uh, I'm going to explain all that next week. Um, and it may be that, that if you're divorced and remarried, you're a little nervous right now, and I get that. Uh, maybe you were clobbered by this passage. Uh, this is one of the passages that's used to clobber divorce and remarried people. Or maybe you haven't been clobbered with it, but you just read that on your own and been wondering, well, how does this pertain to, to you? Are you living in adultery? And so we'll, 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 we'll talk about that next week. And I can tell you, uh, whatever you've received in the past from this passage, if you're divorced or remarried, uh, you're not going to be hearing anything that's shaming from this pulpit. In fact, I think if you come next week or tune in next week, you'll find that, that, that there'll be some things that maybe will liberate you from assumptions that you've held, held. So I encourage you to tune in next week. But see, the team that I work with, and we do everything in teams around here, uh, I work with a team of people that kind of schedule the sermons and talk about the content of the sermons and things like that. And they thought that before we get into divorce and remarriage, it might be good to talk about marriage. And more specifically, about one aspect of our culture which tends to work against the biblical concept of marriage. Um, and so we're going to talk about marriage here this morning. I, I want to remind you that I am, for this message, taking all LGBTQ issues off the table. We talked about that two weeks ago, and I said all that I can say about that uh, uh, two weeks ago. So if you weren't here, I encourage you to get that message. But for this message, I'm going to be focused specifically on what our culture thinks about love, more specifically, what it thinks about romantic love. And I'm going to argue that the way this concept of, of romantic love has evolved in our culture, it, 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 it's, uh, well, it's unbiblical, it tends to set marriages up for a fall, and it tends to marginalize people who aren't married. So, um, uh, yeah, the, 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 I want to get a reframe on, on all that here this morning. So, a little, little brief history on marriage. Traditionally speaking... Uh, people didn't marry because they fell in love. If, traditionally speaking, the marriage covenant wasn't a covenant just between two individuals, a me and a you thing. It was a covenant between families. And most of marriages were arranged. 
you pledge your daughter to that family, they pledge your son to your family. And, and so the, the marriage covenant was about two families entering into a covenant together. And they entered into the covenant together, not because they thought it would make the two individuals happy. That wasn't the point. It's because it's, it's for the well-being of the families. And the well-being of families is associated with the well-being of the social order, the, 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 the tribe, the nation, whatever. And so marriage was about not, not personal fulfillment. It's about uh, uh, doing something that was good for the whole, good for others, good for the family, and good for society. It was, it was assumed that when you got married, then you'll learn how to love one another. At least if, if you're smart, you're going to learn how to love one another because being in a marriage where you don't love one another is, is really miserable. And so it's in your best interest to learn how to love this person with all their faults and whatever. Uh, you didn't choose them, but now you have them, and so you learn how to love after the commitment. But, but no one got married because they were in love. No, they, they, they fell in love, or they didn't fall in love. They learned how to love because they got married. In fact, the whole idea of falling in love, this phrase that we have, um, that actually is a fairly recent concept in human history. This idea that, you know, we fall in love. Look at that phrase. It's like, you tripped, you stumbled. Uh, it, 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 the idea is that, Something came over you. You can't help it. It happened to you. Love is something that happened to you. It happens to you. You have no choice. Well, that idea, it first began to come around in the late Middle Ages. And we had some poets, these courtly poets, who would write these sonnets, these love sonnets. And, and, and the idea was it was kind of a new genre that was created. And it's about a love that can't be fulfilled. It was a tragic love, an unrequited love, a love that's impossible. Society is against it, whatever. And, and they started to talk about this idea of falling in love, but it wasn't a positive thing. No, it, it, when it happens to you, it, it screws your life up. And, and, and that's the tragedy of it. And, and you spend your life yearning for this person you can't have or whatever. So that was the, the birth of this idea of falling in love, something that happens to you. It, it began to be main, it wasn't mainstream until about the 19th century. Mid 19th century, it starts to come into the mainstream. And... Then it gets morphed as it becomes more popular. It, it, it morphs a little bit. It's no longer just about tragic love or unrequited love. Uh, now a happy ever after gets attached to it. You fall in love to, to get your happy ever after. And all the kind of mythology we have about romantic love today starts to arise in this mid-19th century period. Um, the, increasingly, the idea is that you fall in love because that experience... The kind of euphoria that you get when you met the person of your dreams, uh, that, that's where you find the meaning of your life. Uh, that, that's where you're completed. You complete me. I didn't have a life until I met you, and now I have a life. You, you give me my life. It's this idea that you're going to find your soulmate who understands you, who gets you, who laughs at all your jokes and thinks that you're just so clever and funny and, and all of that. That whole idea begins to rise in the 19th century. And the whole idea is that you'll find the person who's going to make you, who's going to satisfy you, going to complete you, and going to make you happy, so now you can live happily ever after. And it's amazing that in 150 years now, this story, this love story, about how you're going to find your life and get completed and all that, it, it goes from being just on the margins to becoming one of the most central narratives that we have today. And by that I mean, a narrative is whatever world you imagine. The, the story you tell yourself about reality uh, it's a story that gives your life a sense of direction and purpose and sets up certain expectations and boundaries and defines your normal and gives you your identity. That's the story that you live in. And in 150 years, this love story, this romantic love story, has become just dominant. You see it everywhere. It's all around us in symbols. It's, it's on the songs and the billboards and the TVs and movies. and every, all the, It's everywhere. And the story is basically that 
Well, here's the norm. Uh, you, you, when you get older, you're going to meet somebody and you're going to fall in love. And, and then you're going to get married and, and you'll probably have babies and you'll live happily ever after. That's the norm. And you might think, well, what's wrong with that story? It's kind of a nice story. That's the story you've been kind of living in. And the answer is there's a whole lot wrong with that story. <laughs> a whole lot wrong with that story. And it messes us up in a lot of ways. Uh, there's three things. I'll, there's, I could give 30, but here's three things that's wrong with that story. Um, number one, the buzz wears off. Somebody say amen. <laughs> here's what, it, it's a buzz. It's falling in love. And I don't mean to be a buzzkill and unromantic. I like romance as much as the next person. But um, see, the story we tell ourselves, when you meet somebody and you're attractive and you, and you kind of have a congruity and you, know, you seem like there's possibilities here, you know? And so you think, maybe they could be the one. Maybe they're, I'm supposed to marry them. And, and that, the fact that we tell ourselves that story, which is a new story in history, but we start giving that those dreams, that creates a dopamine buzz. It releases dopamine in our brain. Our pleasure centers get activated. And that's why people, when they fall in love, they get all screwed up, you know. You take your shoes off and you put them in the refrigerator. I did that once. Because you're, you're so starstruck, you know, and you're just thinking about, you know, and there were birds in the trees, but you never heard them singing until there was you. Yeah, now I, the sky's brighter and the birds sing more beautiful and the sun shines better and, and the water tastes better and air even is better. I mean, the world's wonderful because I'm not the person of my dreams. And see, that gives a dopamine rush and it reinforces the whole thing. But see, it's a chemical reaction. And like all chemical reactions, it eventually wears off. It wears off. And, and uh, the, the, the honeymoon comes to an end. And uh, at some point you realize that this knight in shining armor or this damsel, beautiful damsel in distress or whatever the equivalent would be, I don't know. But uh, uh, that this person that you thought was just so wonderful and glorious and whatever, they, they fart just like you do and it smells just as bad as you and they got bad breath in the morning and they're human, they're fallen humans and they do irritating stuff like fallen humans do and selfish stuff like human, being, human beings do and you're stuck with them for the rest of your life. <laughs> the dopamine has wore off. And see, when the dopamine wears off, then you can find yourself asking the question, you know, is, is this the person that's supposed to fulfill my dreams? Uh, this is the, you know, the, the man of my, my dreams, the woman of my dreams. This is one who's going to complete me. I don't think so. In, in Christian circles, it, it's a little bit worse, even because we have a theology around it. I, I call it the sleepless in Seattle syndrome. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Sleepless in Seattle, uh, it's the quintessential myth of romantic love kind of movie. So, and very sappy, but go ahead and watch it. But the idea is that in, in Christian circles, that God... Almighty himself has chosen your spouse. Uh, there's one right person out there amongst the 8 billion people on the planet. There's one who's going to complete you. And, and God has chosen that person. And I, at Bethel, I would talk to students all the time about this who, you know, they're praying for their spouse, their future spouse, and, and praying that they'll stay chaste and praying that they'll, you know, develop a heart for missions like they have and, and, and praying that they won't miss it. Oh, that's a big one. I, I, you know, because there's one, you, you got to you know, make sure you don't miss it. Which is weird because if God's ordained it, how are you going to miss it? So it's like you're worried, it's, it, it's fait accompli. But anyways, who says that, you know, college kids are always consistent in their theologizing. Habits <laughs> thinking out of their hormones anyway, so, you know, it gets a little messy. But, uh, um, yeah, so there's the one worried person out there. But then, see, then you get married. And um, six months into it, you're saying, this is God's best for me? Are you kidding me? And I have had, this is real, folks. I, I knew a couple where they... they they come to the conclusion that the person they married is not the one that God picked off from them. They must have missed it somehow. And so they start thinking, where did I miss it? Well, there was that high school sweetheart. Man, you were going hot and heavy for a while. 
and, 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 and you got a little carnal, so maybe you weren't hearing God, right? And then you ended up breaking up. But maybe that was, that, that you were out of the will of God when you broke up. That was supposed to happen. And now you got married to this Yahoo instead, God's plan B, if not God's plan C. And so this person says, well, I'd rather have God's plan A. Maybe it's not too late. So the divorce, the plan C, the plan Z wife, and then uh, the other person divorced their plan Z husband, and these high school sweethearts reunite, thinking maybe we can reconnect and rekindle what we had before and get back online with God's best. And for a while, they have a dopamine rush, and it works. And then the dopamine wears off, and they realize that they just blew apart two families with kids and did a real stupid, stupid, stupid thing. People do crazy stuff when they're on that dopamine. So here's the thing, you know, it is, and I'm, this is mainly intent towards the younger folks, uh, but it applies to anybody who's maybe in the, in the, looking at the possibility of marriage and looking at relationships. It is undeniably exciting when you meet somebody and, and you hit it off and there's a, you know, they're just, a, they're easy to talk to and, and they seem to be wired like you and they, they, the process of discovery, and it does create a dopamine rush. And that's fine, let it be, enjoy it. If, if, if you have it, have it. Don't feel like you're being cheated if you don't. Some have it, some don't, but it's just a dopamine rush. But don't read too much into it. Uh, look, look at, you, yeah, you're, you're foggy and, and you're starry-eyed and everything looks different and you can't think about anything else but them and, and the, all that and you're feeling so euphoric and wonderful. It doesn't mean that God's telling you to marry them. It doesn't mean that they're you know, the, the, the one that's going to complete you, that you're going to live happily ever after. Uh, plenty of folks have made that mistake. Don't repeat it. Don't, 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 don't read too much into that. And, and see, here's the thing. I, I, I'm not for going back to the arranged marriages. I think we're beyond that. But I do think that the traditional view of marriage, and which is a biblical view of marriage, has a, a very, very important truth that we are in danger of losing because of this myth of romantic love. And, and that truth is this. They were right when they understood that for whatever reasons you got married, you're going to learn how to love after you're married. Maybe you chose it. Maybe your parents arranged it. Maybe you got the dopamine buzz. Maybe you didn't. But for whatever the reasons were why you got in that marriage, here's one thing that's sure. If it's going to be a good, godly marriage, you're going to have to learn how to love. They were right that marriage is about learning to love. Whether you get, whether you get married because you're in love, you're going to have to learn to love. It, it, you, and, and that shouldn't surprise us because we know that all life is about this. The whole project is about learning how to love. Church is about learning how to love together. That whether you're single or whether you're married, God will find ways to teach you how to love. And it's a learning process. Uh, some folks have said that, you know, we get married because we think it's going to make us happier. But God's up there saying, oh, this is going to be a great character development project. And, 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 and that's what it is. Marriage is a great character development you know, project. It, God says, I, I, I can use this to refine these characters. Uh, they'll, they'll be iron sharpening iron. <laughs> uh, words sharpening word. Lord help us. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, so it, it, you learn how to put the other person's uh, interests above your own. You learn how uh, to submit to one another. You learn how to be considerate to one another and not take each other for granted. You learn how to not get bent out of shape over little things. You learn how to not to, to hold on to grudges, to forgive quickly. All that stuff that doesn't come natural to us, we learn it. And we learn it by finding out how to live with a person for the rest of our life that maybe it turns out we're not that compatible with. We're really wired very differently. That dopamine buzz covers a whole lot of things. Uh, love covers a multitude of sins, but so does dopamine. It's just that dopamine does it in a short-term way. And so it's stuff you learn how to do. It takes work. And, 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 and so it's so important that going into a marriage, 
whether you're young or whether you're older, whether it's your first marriage, second marriage, whatever, going into it, you got to know it's it's not going to be this this happy ever after that you don't have to work on. That that's a lie. That that, that story sets us up for a fall. Uh, people who, who believe that, then when they get into a marriage and it turns out to be work, they think, oh gosh, maybe this isn't the right one. I should go back to my high school sweetheart or something. No, we got to go into marriages knowing that it's uh, it's work and, and it, it takes sacrifice. It's something that you learn how to do. Uh, don't be fooled by the chemical reaction and for goodness sake, don't fall in love with that dopamine buzz. There are people who fall in love with falling in love. Maybe some of you have dated them and your heart's broken because of it. Because these are people who just get so addicted to that dopamine rush it's like the best thing in the world to them. It's, it's their cocaine, and so they got to have it. And while they're in it, they're just enjoying it, and they really think it's real, it's really sincere, and so they, you know, will say, oh, I've never felt this way before, it's never been like this, no one's ever been, blah, 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 blah. But then it wears off, and when it wears off, well, then they got to move on to the next dopamine rush. I guess this wasn't the one. And so they move on, and, and it leaves a trail of broken hearts behind them. And not for arranged marriages, but I also don't think the way we date today is very healthy because it leads to a whole lot of broken hearts, especially these people who are addicted to dopamine and there's more out there than you might think. They're good at this because they do it so much. They know how to tell the story to themselves and tell it to others. They know how to sell this and they lure people in and there's broken hearts along the way. Whatever dating looks like, folks, and I'm not here to give a sermon on dating, but, but, but it can't look like that in the body of Christ. Because uh, we are in the body of Christ, and we'll say more about this a little bit later on, but we're brothers and sisters before we're husband and wife. Before we're anything, we're brothers and sisters, part of the same family. And, and, and you don't go around breaking your sibling's heart because it gives you a dopamine rush to do so. And for those who are listening to this message, and you know that you are one of those who have broken a bunch of hearts, I would t- encourage you to take this to heart. You have an obligation to not do that. And wake up to your own dopamine addiction. It's a chemical reaction. Don't be fooled by it. Don't fall in love with it. So the first one is the, the buzz wears off. Second problem is that no spouse can do what this love story says a spouse is supposed to do. No spouse can meet all the expectations of their, their, their spouse. Uh, this myth of romantic love sets people up to think that there's going to be that one person, that one person that's tailor-made to complete you. This is a real dumb phrase, if you ask me. Um, this person is supposed to be your lover, but also your best friend, your conversational partner, which is why you're supposed to want to spend all your time around them. It's just, why would you want to be around anyone else? Everything's found here. The meaning of life is found here. The purpose of life, existence is found here. So you spend all your time together. And, and so every, every couple of lovers are, are, are a self-contained group. You got your own little bubble of completeness. Oh, the euphoria that you have. Trouble is, it does not work. It does not work. There is no way that one person is going to meet all the needs of another person, psychological, emotional, spiritual, physical, social needs. No, no one person can do that. But if you buy into this lie, well, then what happens is when you begin to realize that this person isn't meeting all your needs, you begin to wonder, well, is that really the one? The one, because the one's supposed to meet all my needs. And then when it turns out you can't meet all their needs either, you begin to wonder if, if you're the one. Uh, you, you know, they, they like talking to somebody else more than you about a particular topic because you're kind of dull on that topic. Yeah, that's okay. But see, if you think that you're supposed to meet all their needs, then you get jealous. No, you should be talking to me about all that. And I've seen this destroy marriages. I, 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 I knew a, a, a wife who just would not let her husband talk to any females unless she was present. Uh, she, was, she was afraid of that. Just, and that's hard to sustain. Uh, a husband who, who made his new wife 
uh, no, no longer see her best friend, uh, who was a male. Um, she grew up with this kid. They were lifelong friends from childhood, but he's now threatened by that. Because he's supposed to fill all, fulfill all the friendship needs. Like cutting off your wife's best friend is really going to endear her to you and make her want to be your best friend. I mean, it's just, it, it does a lot of destruction. Here's the thing. I, I really believe it's important, so important, that spouses pay attention to what their spouses think about all their relationships. Listen to your spouse. And sometimes spouses can see things that you can't see. Like, I'm not sure I know about, I trust this person's motives in wanting to be your friend and things like that. You need to listen to your spouse. At the same time, and listen to this, the essence of all relationships is trust. Trust is foundational for everything. And, and unless your, 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 your coveted partner, your spouse, has, has given you reason not to trust them, then part of what it means to be faithful to the covenant is that you give them your trust. When, when, when the covenant is you pledge to be trustworthy and to trust your covenant partner to be trustworthy. That's the essence of it. So you have an obligation to trust them. And if you come into the marriage with a lot of insecurities, this could be really hard, but it also could be a growing opportunity to get out of this. You have to trust them. And even if they've given you reasons not to trust them, maybe they had an affair, or maybe they've lied a bunch of times or whatever, you have trouble trusting them. Okay, that's what it is. And trust needs to be earned. But there's got to be some way to earn it back. There's got to be a plan, and it can't be eternal, a way to get trust back, because a relationship that lacks trust is not a relationship. A relationship that lacks trust is a prison. That's kind of smart if you think about it. A relationship that lacks trust is a prison. You're stuck in it. It's nothing. So there's got to be a trust or at least a way to, to go about rebuilding trust. And, and, and what that means, among other things, is this. We've got to let go of this mythology that one person's supposed to be your, the beginning, middle, and end of everything that you're about. They can't do that. There are certain needs that only a spouse should meet, for sure. Certain needs. And it's to everyone's advantage in your marriage to try to be as good of friends as possible. Be as good conversationalist as possible. Have as much in common as possible. And I encourage you to make the kingdom that, that, that main commonality. And I thank God that over the years, Shelly and I have learned to love each other and have, learned to, have become our best friends, even though we're so radically different. You know, we're proof that aliens can become best friends with one another. So that's a real plus in a marriage. Work for that. And really, in the, at the end of the day, the only validation, the reason for getting married, the ultimate reason would be because you can do more in the kingdom together than you can do alone. And so make that your commonality. Seek first the kingdom of God. Whether you're single, whether you're married, seeking first the kingdom should be our, our, our Magna Carta, our charter. And, and, and so that should be the criteria for everything we do. Get married because you're better at the kingdom married than you are single. If that's not true, then stay single. Or at least consider doing that. We need to let go of that assumption that the marriage can fulfill all the needs. Here's the thing. The, this myth of romantic love, it has had the effect of isolating couples from the broader society. That's where we get this myth of, of the nuclear family. It's kind of a self-contained bubble, not having any essential relationships to, to, or communication with, with folks around them. You're just self-contained. That myth of romantic love has that effect. It isolates couples from the broader social network. Whereas traditionally, and this is also true biblically, marriage was understood to be embedded in the social network. It's part of the social network. And, and it was understood that the couple are going to have deep relationships with people outside of the marriage. And that wasn't a threat to the marriage. In fact, that was what, that strengthens the marriage. It's, it solidifies the marriage in the broader social network. That's why they got married for the broader social good. It, it's, it's good, it's good for, everybody, for everybody. And traditionally speaking, it was understood that, in fact, that friendships, they have nothing to do with sex. 
just friendships where you have a commonality, a common purpose, those can be at least as rewarding as the marriage relationship. All throughout history, this is how things have been viewed. That they didn't look to the marriage relationship to fulfill everything. They looked to friendships to fulfill a bunch of things. Aristotle said that the most profound love that human beings can experience is the love between two friends with a common purpose, working towards a common goal. Uh, now, that ought to, try to make your marriage that as much as possible <laughs> and make the goal a kingdom goal. But they understood that friendships can be deep and rewarding. This idea that you're going to be somehow incomplete and, and, and until you get married was just it's totally foreign throughout all of history until he adopted this myth of romantic love. Um, and in fact, historically, the language that is now used mainly for sexual intimacy or romantic intimacy, I love you with all my heart and give my life to you and you mean the world to me and you're so beautiful, whatever. That language used to be used for friendships. Friends talk that way. Up until very recently, in the mid-19th century, you look at Abraham Lincoln, the letters he wrote to his, his lifelong friend, and, and uh, Emily Dickinson, the letters she wrote to her sister-in-law, and, and they talk about, I, I love you with all my heart, I commit my life to you, you mean the world to me, I couldn't go on without you, but there's nothing sexual about it. It's just that they have a deep, profound, rewarding, intimate relationship. But when this myth of romantic love comes into being, now that language gets associated with romantic sexual intimacy, and so it becomes taboo to talk about that among friends, especially among guys, I'll have to say, in the last hundred years. Um, there's just this like, no, you don't use that kind of language that, that, that has sexual overtones to it. It wasn't until I was in my 40s where I, that I could look at a guy and say, dude, I really love you. I really love you. And I feel squeamish about it. I mean, I always kind of like pat on the back, I love you, but just felt like, you know, too weird. And that's tragic because when we can't go there verbally, we don't go there existentially. We can't, it closes the door on, on what we expect from, from ordinary friendships. We don't look to them to really satisfy us. When they can, they can. And we need that to happen because it takes the pressure off of marriage to make all that happen. You following what I'm saying here? We need to recover this idea of spiritual friendships. The classic example of this in scripture is David and Jonathan. Uh, they, they, they bound together, they made a covenant with one another. Um, and, and pledged their lives for one another. And then at the end of Jonathan's life, after he was killed in battle, David gives the eulogy, and, and, and here, here's, here's what he says. He says, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you by me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Now, there's some commentators who try to argue that David and Jonathan were gay lovers here. Um, but see, there's nothing in the text that would require that interpretation because this is just the way friends have talked to each other up until recently. Uh, and all David is saying is that this was the most rewarding relationship he has in his life. It meant more to him than his relationship with his wives. And he had quite a few wives, but his love for Jonathan would, would surpass that. Uh, it just is an example of the kind of depth and, and, and love that a friendship can have, and it doesn't have to get weird and sexual or romantic. It's just about commitment and love and intimacy, and we all need friends like that. So the, the second problem is that, uh, that, that no one person can do all that this, this myth of romantic love requires spouses to do. The third issue is this. That myth of romantic love, it alienates single people or marginalizes single people. It almost dehumanizes single people. Because here's the reason. If, if, if you believe 
whether explicitly or tacitly, if you believe that your life gets complete when you find that one true love, well then if you haven't found that one true love, you must not be complete. You're still in, in, in a waiting mode. If, if, if finding that one person is what gives your life meaning, well then if you haven't found that one person yet, because obviously you're looking for them, uh, it, it means that, that you haven't found your meaning yet, you haven't found your purpose yet. If you've arrived only when you find your one true love, well then you haven't arrived yet. And it's a tremendous stigma to put on, on, on uh, single folks. Here's a quote. It, it's, Paul Eddy gave me this quote last night um, from Christianity Today. It's 1979, but I think it still applies today. He, a person said this. Margaret Clarkson said, I may, not blame, I may not blame my singleness on God. Singleness, like suffering, death, and all else that is less than perfect in this world, was not God's original plan for his creation. It was one of the many results of man's fall. Isn't that sad? Like, this, I, I'm, she's claiming it. She's admitting that there's something defective about her. She's part, this is a, a broken part of the world. It's, it's part of sin that she hasn't found a man yet. And so she's just waiting for it to happen. One problem with this, this, this idea, this stigma is this. Uh, Jesus was, I'm pretty sure, the most complete, fulfilled, uh, arrived at human being in all of history. And guess what? He wasn't married. Huh? Uh, that itself is enough to blow that mist sky high. This idea that there's something wrong with you or off with you or that in any sense you're less than because you're single, whether it's by choice or whether it's by circumstance, the idea that, that, you're, that, that, that you, know, you haven't drank it from the silver cup yet, you haven't read, wrote, wrote that highway in the sky, uh, the idea that you're missing out on life because you haven't followed that person is just a crock of baloney. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's unbiblical and it's stupid. It's unbiblical and stupid. So here's the thing. I haven't been single for 42 years, so you kind of forget what that's like. So we have on staff here this, this young lady who is a part of our communications department. And in terms of her doing communication stuff, we find out that she's really smart. She loves to do research. And she's a crackerjack good teacher. And, 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 and so I, I thought, Emily, you're still single. And so would you tell us a little bit, share a little bit about what you found in your research, a little bit about your, your life and whatever. Whatever you want to talk about, we anoint thee. Give a warm Woolen Hills welcome to Emily Morrison. Take it away, Emily. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Yeah, like Greg said, my name is Emily. I'm on the communications team here at Woodland. Uh, among many things that I do, I am responsible for the slides. So if you ever see a typo, that's on me. So because I haven't taught here before, I thought I'd give you a little a snippet of uh, something about me, something that you wouldn't know. And uh, that's my first memory in life. And my first memory in life is of being in an airport when I was three years old, and I was running very happy, furious circles, and I snagged the seat of my pants on a chair and ripped them. So my mom picked me up, and she put me face down over her lap, and I didn't know what was going on, and then she got out her sewing kit, because pre-9-11, and she just stitched my pants back up and then put me down, and I took off running more circles. And ever since then... I have loved airports. I will hang out in an airport any day. And so when Greg asked me uh, to talk about singleness, one of the first things I thought about was how so much of the time when we think about singleness in the church, we think about it as a time of waiting. And airports are a place with lots and lots and lots of waiting, especially if you're like me and you're really afraid you're going to miss your flight so you get there like five hours early. Then you get to sit and do people watching. But you wait at the ticket counter. You wait to go through security. You wait at your gate. You wait to board. You wait to taxi off. 
And a lot of times that's how we think about singleness, is we think about singleness as just a whole bunch of waiting. There's a, there's a singles terminal, right? And our, our married friends like join the Diamond Member Club and they get to board the married flight to marriage land. And we singles kind of just sit there and we eat our $12 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the airport. Uh, but this is a problem, thinking about singles sitting there twiddling their thumbs until real life starts. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. But somehow we've gotten this idea, like Greg was saying, this, this myth of romantic love, that marriage is the peak, the pinnacle of relationships, and that you haven't arrived until you've gotten there. Like interesting life, exciting life starts there, and singleness is just kind of this awkward, annoying problem that we don't know how to talk about. Like, they have this question, are, are single people actually adults? <laughs> like, can you be a grown-up if you're not married? I'm not so sure. It just seems to be this marker that you have to reach. So uh, marriage overshadows all these other relationships that we, we have in society. And, and we spend so much of our life working towards marriage. It's the, it's the end goal of so much of our time and energy. And then once we get there, it's like, uh, it's like Greg said, it's like it's this bubble that you end up in and you're, you're trapped there. So uh, in these minutes, I want to talk about what it's like for me as a single person and then what I think a vision of singleness could be in the church. Because you know what? Singles make up 50% of America, and so you got to do something with half of us. You can't leave us hanging. So uh, on the one hand, there's two sides to singleness in my mind. On the one hand, it is a gift, a, a true gift. Uh, I... And I don't mean that in the sense of like a spiritual gift or a calling, because sometimes I think we really over-spiritualize singleness. And that's not necessary. Like my life as a single person can be good and rich and full of meaning without it having to be a spiritual gifting. Like this is how I am, this is my life, and it's a good life. Um, but, but it is a gift in how much freedom I have. Um, I can go on last-minute road trips, and I don't have to get a babysitter, and I don't have to talk to my spouse. I don't have to talk to people about my time and my energy and my money. And so that there's a lot of fun in that and a lot of freedom, a lot of things I get to do and try out. Um, but along with that, too, one of the things I love is that I have this accessibility and availability that enables me to serve people in my life that I love. I love that I can drop what I'm doing if someone is in a crisis situation or is needing a little extra help. I'm able to come. And I, I want that to be my life for my friends and my family. I want my life to be interruptible. An interruptible life where I can show up. And I have the freedom to do that. Uh, Paul points, out this, points this out really well in 1 Corinthians 7. He says starting in verse 32. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and spirit. But to a married, a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. 
I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. Because Paul knew, Paul was single, Paul knew that single people are able to be single-minded. We have a place that married people can't fit in the kingdom. My, my heart can be undivided, fully given to Jesus. I'm not pulled here and I'm not pulled there. I can use my singleness for the kingdom. Just as Greg was talking about how marriage is meant to be used for the kingdom, singleness can be used for the kingdom in a way that married people don't have to offer. Um, I'd also like to point out that the Apostle Paul did say, I wish everyone could be single as I am. So I think I'm just going to wrap up there. But along with those gifts, there's, there's another side to singleness in that it can really, really be hard. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a person who has a lot of nightmares. And a lot of times when I wake up in the middle of the night, I just, I wish there was somebody there to say, like, it's okay, you had a bad dream, just go back to sleep. And there isn't, and that's hard. When I'm making a big decision, I, I, sometimes I don't know what to do, and I can ask friends for advice, but there's nobody to shoulder that decision with me. Like, ultimately, it's all gonna fall back on me. And when I'm filling out things, like, you know, you sit in the in a hospital and says, who's your emergency contact? And it's like, I don't know, who should my emergency contact be? And who should my beneficiaries be for the vast amounts of wealth that I will will leave behind? (laughs) Uh, So singleness is is this both and. It's good and it's bad. And I think some people look at singles and they, they envy us and they're like, oh man, those lucky dogs, they can do whatever they want. Or there's kind of this pity of like, oh, those poor, lonely singles, like, we got to get them married off somehow. But our lives are complex, and they're, they're both and. So there's this, this uh, airport terminal singleness mentality in, in the church. But I've experienced, uh, my singleness has been less waiting around, um, and I, I think there's another version of singleness that I've experienced in the church, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, I'm going to put it in the airport as well, but I'm going to add a little twist. So one of my favorite movies is called The Terminal, and it is a movie starring Tom Hanks as this guy named Victor Navorsky from a, fish, a fictional Eastern European uh, country. And he's flying to the States, and while he's in the air, his country falls underneath a, a coup. So when he lands, his country doesn't exist, and the U.S. doesn't recognize his papers, so he can't go back and he can't leave the airport. So he has to live in the airport. Um, and so he finds a wing of the airport that's under construction, and he kind of makes like a bed for himself. He figures out how to shove like all the chairs together, and he takes his showers in in the men's room, and he he figures out how to how to create this life. And it's really cool because he befriends all these different people in the airport. He gets to know the security people and the janitors, and there's even this flight attendant that uh, comes through all the time, and he gets to know her. And and so by the end of the movie he lives there for months and months and months by the end of the movie he has this all these connections in the airport this really um built up community and for me with my singleness i i didn't want to be sitting around in an airport terminal 
twiddling my thumbs and like trying to scope out if one of these other people might board the marriage flight with me. I, I felt like I have something to offer. I'm part of the body of Christ. I have things to do and places to go and people to see. So I'm going to build a home and a community right here in this airport terminal. And I'm going to make a life here. And if you're single, <laughs> you don't have to be sitting around either. We can, we can do this. So over the years, I've lived less than one year of my life alone in an apartment. I, the rest of the time, I've lived with uh, families, families with kids, families without kids. I've lived with other singles. I lived in a giant intentional Christian community with 30 people. And all of those experiences have meant so much to me. Right now, I live with a couple and their kids, uh, 12 and 7. And, and there's this sense of belonging. I, I hate being by myself. I don't think we're meant to be by ourselves. And so I, I have this, this community and that's rich and full despite the times when I feel lonely. I feel like I have a place and who I am and what I do matters. But the thing about this, this second airport scenario is that a lot of the work of making that community fell on me because it wasn't, it, it's not meant to be that way. You're not meant to camp out in an airport. And so as a single person longing for and looking for and wanting community, I, I had to figure out how to make it work and it was, a lot of it, yeah, it was just me. Like, how do I do this? Because the church and our culture has not figured out how to make a homey place that's not an airport for people. And, you know, Victor Navorsky, did he actually have a home in the airport? Well, not, not really, right? He had friends and community, but, but it's not supposed to be like that. And the kingdom isn't supposed to be like that either. So currently, it feels like the church has these two options, Right? So one is, is you sit in the singles terminal and, and you wait, and they have the overhead announcements. And these are the overhead announcements that you hear all the time. It goes, ding, if you only stop looking, your spouse will come. <laughs> ding, the greatest way to experience the love of God is in marriage. <laughs> ding, all unattended baggage will be removed. Singles are considered unattended baggage. <laughs> so that's one. Option two is uh, I'll sneak an airline blanket off the plane and I'll stretch out on some chairs and I'll stick my carry-on under my head and use it as a pillow and I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll cobble this life together, a good life with people that I love, but it's just hard because it's not what it's meant to be. Yeah, that's what airport, or airport terminals are not supposed to be to be that way. So, so church, is there a third option? With Jesus, there's always a third option, right? should know that by now. So yes, absolutely yes, there's a third option. And this would be to build a place that is meant to be a home full of family. And the way to do that is to take seriously the words of Jesus that we are family. And I'm not talking about just throwing around the word family like we're really good at doing in the church. Like, oh, we're family. And not doing anything about it. We're pretty casual about that. What I mean is, and just hear me out, what I mean is, what if we actually thought that Jesus meant what he said when he said that we were family, that we are sisters and brothers, and we took that as our primary identity, our first identity as, uh, as followers of Jesus. Because 
You open up the New Testament and over and over and over again, you see Jesus using the language of family to talk to his followers and, and tell them who they are uh, as they walk with him. There's, there's that story um, in Matthew 12 where the disciples come to Jesus and they're like, yo, Jesus, your, your mother is looking for you, your brothers, like you want to talk to them? And uh, Jesus says, uh, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We are meant to literally be family with God as our Father, our mother. Jesus is our big brother. And our first identity when we start following Jesus is that we join a family. When you, come to, when you come to the church and you decide to follow Jesus, like, hey, man, welcome, welcome, welcome to the family. You're my sister, you're my brother, you're part of this. We have family by birth or we have family by covenant. And part of what God has given us as a gift is this new covenant of family. And God can't break his covenant. His covenants are forever. So when we are part of the covenant family, that's a forever deal. We are brothers and sisters forever. And there's no hierarchy in that. I've never been to a family reunion where the family says, okay, and the singles are going to go hang out in this part, and the married people are going to hang out in this part. Like, no, it's like we're all related. We're this jumble of people with gifts and personality and fun, and we just get to enjoy each other. We all have a place. And the New Testament writers learned this from Jesus, and they took it and ran with it. I did a quick word search when I was prepping for this, and I found out that every single letter in the New Testament, believers refer to other believers with family terms. They call them sisters and brothers. They call them family in general. They call them sons and daughters. They're always referring to each other as family members because that's the norm. That's the, that's the heart. That's the standard language of the church. Uh, my favorite example of this is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, which says, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Love that. Our big brother, he's not embarrassed about his little siblings. He can tag around, he loves it. We get to be family. So, this whole family thing is not a PR stunt from the church. It's not a consolation prize to make us singles feel better. Family will enable singles to thrive in the church and couples. Being a family is really, really good for couples. Uh, we need to reclaim this as our starting point. Family is first. Marriage is an add-on. Marriage is a wonderful, beautiful, good add-on and a way to serve God, but it's, it's number two. And when God restores all things and we have the new heaven and the new earth, there's not going to be marriage. I'm sorry. I'm, no, I'm not sorry. It's not going to be there. We're going to be brothers and sisters. We're going to be a family. So don't leave singles waiting in the waiting room and don't wish them luck on, like, go forth and build your community. Let's reclaim the family that Jesus told us about, this family that's in it together, each with our gifts and intertwined lives where we have genuine love and covenant commitment to each other. How do we do that? That's 
not a lot of time for that. So I'm going to give you one thing to take with you, just one thing, and that is eat meals together. So if you are a couple, if you are a family, invite a single person over, please. I, I grew up uh, in the mission field, and my parents were, they did this all the time. Every single week, we had single people over to our house. Sometimes there was like a set night where the same person came over every week. And uh, always for uh, holidays, Christmas and Thanksgiving, we always had single people over. And I just kind of thought that was the way the world worked because we were always doing that. And I've been on the receiving end of that, and it, it feels so good to be seen and included. So invite people over. And, and if single people, you don't have people, families in your life inviting you over, invite yourself over, okay? I have done that with families. I said, you name the time, I will bring the food. Just let me come to your house and hang out at your table. Uh, there was a time when I was far away from my family and my birthday was coming up and I didn't know if anybody would remember it. So I told one of my friends, hey, my birthday's coming up on this day and here's the recipe for the cake that my mom always makes me. <laughs> Can I come over? So either way, let's, let's eat together. All right, family, like, you hear me? You, you good on this? We got this? Right. We're family. All right, so uh, prayer, if you need prayer, uh, there's prayer in the back by the prayer chapel. There's also prayer online, whchurch.org slash Sunday-prayer. Um, we have gathering groups, which is a way to go into what we talk about on the weekends with a group of people. Those are really great. You can find more about those online, whchurch.org slash highlights. And also at that same site, you can find information about the MuseCast, which is Dan, Oshida, and Shauna, and they like go deep, deep dive into everything that we talk about and uh, have a lot more. So my family, my sisters, my brothers... Go in 